Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now, my dear friends, this is the 26th sermon in our sermon series of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And our study this evening is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. The Apostle Paul writes next in these verses of the relationship between slaves and masters. The third and final set of household relationships in our homes. Now, what we have called the church in miniature. Now, perhaps for most of us, we have one question here. Why didn't the Apostle Paul simply command to end slavery? So to answer our question, we should set our scene. It would be good to pause to consider the nature of slavery in the Greco-Roman world. Now, the Roman Empire in the first century AD, when Paul wrote, was a world of slavery on a huge scale. A hundred years before Paul sent his letter to the Ephesians, Julius Caesar shipped back to Rome somewhere in the region of a million slaves. The bounty of his conquest of Gaul in the Lower Rhine and the south coast of Britain. Slaves made up about 25 to 35% of the population of the empire. Now, slaves may be the result of conquest, as we see with Caesar. It could be the resolution for a debt owed, a way to guarantee a path in a trade or skill or craft, or an educational pathway, or it could simply be a matter of family history and family security. The differences in the ancient world from ours are reflected in your English Standard Version translation. You may read it for yourself for your homework in the preface under the translation of specialized terms. Now, without the institution, the Roman world would never have functioned the way it did, and every slave had rights of appeal through the authorities. And there was the real option for manumission, that is, freedom through an agreed contract of exchange. It's in this context that slaves fulfilled a vast variety of roles in that society. Going from the menial among Rome's countless tenant farms and city corporations to the highest positions in Roman government and civil service. Many were highly educated, serving as physicians, engineers, translators, educators, philosophers, and commercial agents. Some accumulated huge fortunes or gained an influence in a Roman governor's administration, a general's staff, or the emperor's inner circle. 
Now of the last category, there is one name that we know for which you will be familiar. Felix, the Roman governor of Judea, before whom the Apostle Paul made his defense in Acts 23, was a former Greek slave. He took manumission and gained his freedom. He then received a gift in a high political position, thanks to his patron, who was also his brother, Pallas. Now, Pallas was another former slave, but he was also the Secretary of State for the entire Roman Empire under the Emperor Claudius. So, in this sense, you see, many Roman slaves were not economically or socially degraded, as in most cultures. They weren't necessarily slaves for life, as we would find in chattel slavery of the Americas. But we also must be very clear that for the great majority of slaves in the Roman world, the insecurity of their status, the possibility of victimization by those in authority over them, were exactly the same as we would find today. Some were humiliated, abused physically and verbally, sometimes treated with such savagery. And we know all this because they brought suit against their masters in the Roman courts. In other words, friends, the psychology, the mental health of slavery does not change for the slave. The anxiety and fear, the threat every day of your life as long as you were a slave. So when we come to our study this evening, it's best to keep the evil of slavery in mind and recognize that Paul is dealing with his immediate cultural reality while also preparing for a complete and total cultural transformation. This is how he does it. We've seen how he has used the Christ-like principle of sacrifice and submission in his instructions to parents and to husbands. He now applies the same to masters and slaves. The application of these principles does not differ very much from what he writes concerning the other household pairings that we've looked at. But the type of relationship does differ from what has gone before. It is not the same thing, is it? So the Apostle Paul writes in this section how the gospel works in a social order that you and I would find intolerable. He does so in three ways, through a different attitude, a different motive, and a different perspective. So let's begin with the first, a different attitude. He writes, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. We notice right away that slaves were to continue in their status for the present time. We know Paul writes elsewhere that if manumission were possible, a slave should take it. 
But Paul also repeats his principle concerning relationships among believers here, doesn't he? The Christian is marked by a spirit of appropriate submission because he or she has submitted to Christ. The basic status of the believer is fundamentally and totally different from the unbeliever. We are new creatures. Therefore, his or her pattern of living must, in a fundamental way, be different too. Slaves are to obey their masters and to do so with fear and trembling. Now, the sense of Paul's use of the word here, translated fear and trembling, is not one of a vulnerable terror. Rather, he's used it already. It's more the sense of a loving reverence or an awe. We saw it first in verse 21 of chapter 5. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's the same phrase. But a reverence, honor, and respect, in other words, fear, Christ. We saw in verse 33 when he writes that a believing wife is to reverence, fear, honor, respect her husband. It's the same sense here. Masters are accountable for their conduct before the throne of God. Therefore, the one under his authority submits humbly, with an awe, with a respect of the place that they hold before their heavenly judge. Now we know this because of the way in which Paul takes it a bit further here. He adds, with trembling, a sincere heart. And in his other letters, he's described this attitude as the Christian's general disposition before the Lord. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, he wrote that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He uses the same expression in writing to the Corinthians, that this is the attitude that they should have when Titus, Paul's appointed representative, comes among them. In both examples, what is Paul doing? He's describing a loyalty, a respect, that is driven by the thought that the one you love might be let down. And the one you love, isn't it, my dear friend, my dear believing friend, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling on the same disposition here. It's in the relation of the believer to his or her master. That expression is giving to their relationship with their Savior in heaven. That's what lies behind it. The key qualification, he writes here, you do these things as you would to Christ. He is the true master. Therefore, it is for him, rather than their immediate context, that must be their incentive to live out their new life in Christ. Again, notice how Paul assumes that both master and slave would be sitting in the congregation, much as parent and children would be, as this letter is read publicly. In other words, there's no difference in status in worship. All are equal before the throne of God. All are equal to receive God's word, to be comforted in the sacrament. Therefore, just as thankfulness, 
motivates obedience to Christ for all believers. It overflows into the quality of our service out of love and reverence for him. This is the same spirit that's marked this entire section, hasn't it? It is the subversive character of the gospel here, isn't it? That we find in a believer's different motive. And that's where he goes next. The slave is to do these things, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So obedience is not by way of eye service as people pleasers. A believer never has an earthly master in view. It is always an expression of their obedience to Christ, the true and best master whose service is what? Perfect freedom. The unbeliever will never understand why the Christian slave is so gracious and so diligent. The slave's goodwill to his master is an expression of his love for his Lord. Therefore, a slave could very well enjoy a different quality of freedom, a freedom from anxiety, an inner freedom, while serving an unbelieving human master who regarded himself or herself as the center of the universe. A sinful human being, who if they are an unbeliever, is too short-sighted to notice that his or her Christian slave was looking far beyond them, far beyond the earthly master, to the heavenly one. They were serving him. And that's the key, isn't it? When we learn to readjust our focus to Christ, we are set free to a great extent from any earthly servility. We gain a joy, a pleasure in our labors we have never known before. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul writes pastorally to the Corinthian church. The way in which the resurrection transforms our hearts and minds. In other words, death doesn't have the last word. You're either alive or you're dead, and it's meaningless. Rather, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Because we know that what we labor for can never be in vain in the Lord. Even further, because we do them for his pleasure, it becomes our greatest joy and pleasure. In other words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master is Christ's benediction upon the believer on the last day of this present evil age. Now Paul concludes then by turning to Christian believers who were actually the masters, the slave owners themselves. He points out that they must have a different perspective. 
Masters, he writes, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. You see how the Christian master has important responsibility. As the owner, the gospel must transform his or her perspective. The pattern of the one in authority is the same for husband, parent, and now the master. He or she is called to serve Christ, to be one who has authority, who pours himself into his relationship with his slave in ways that express who he or she is now as a new man or woman in Christ. Therefore, masters are to do the same to them. In other words, to their slaves. That is, despite the very different social status they possess, the master is to empty himself in such a way that both master and slave may live out the new creation in every aspect of their relationship. So, in sharp contrast to the ungodly slave owner, the believing Christian master never threatens. In the same way that Christian fathers were to stop provoking their children with behavior that was inconsistent with the faith they professed, Christian masters must also work this principle through their lives. Grace transforms them as threats fade and encouragement rises. And so a master is not to show partiality. The believing master is like his own master, the Lord Jesus, who will show grace without qualification. The master realizes that he is not the Lord. Christ alone is. Jesus is Lord. And that he is Lord of both his slave and himself. Before him both are equal. It was customary that the faith of the master would gather up all the persons in the household. That's why we read not only of the head, but the entire household professing faith and coming to be baptized in the book of Acts and in the epistles. Imagine the amazement it must have been to a slave in a household whose master is converted when the spirit of the entire household is transformed. What a wonderful day that must have been. And consider how this biblical principle overturns completely the worldview and daily practice of every slave-holding household outside of the Church of Christ. The Apostle Paul enables the gospel to progress in a society that approves of slavery while planting the seeds of its destruction. We see the same pattern in his shortest letter, the letter to Philemon. Paul does not command him to release his slave, Onesimus. Instead, he tells him that he is to think of him as Paul's own son and to treat him as a beloved brother. In the same way that Paul brought Philemon to Christ and was in such a way his spiritual father, so he has done for Onesimus. 
So in that sense, both Onesimus and Philemon are brothers in Christ, Paul being their spiritual father. He writes that he is sending Onesimus back to him. It's like sending his very heart. Again, in 1 Corinthians, he reminds them all in chapter 7, verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is actually a freedman of the Lord. It's not difficult to imagine, then, is it, that in the households of believers where the commands of Paul were followed, the bonds of slavery and the fear of violence were totally broken, and that the freedom of Christ will not only reign in their attitudes, in their motivation, in their perspective, but also it would overflow in practical ways every day. Consider how this view of day-to-day life teaches us a great fact, that we're never to think our work and our witness are two different things. We give testimony in the work that we do, by the way that we do it, as we are doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are his, we are. So as we pause at the end now, we can see that this section is more radical than we first imagined. The level of mutuality, equality, reciprocity, between slave and master that is assumed to exist in the Christian home creates an atmosphere in which it would have been impossible for slavery to survive. If the command were received and kept humbly and lovingly between believers. So my friends, I would suggest that the problem this section highlights for us, it's not its failure to rise above a brutal and global institution, but the failure of those who receive this scripture as authoritative, both in the ancient world, in the early modern era here in North America, and even today, where slavery is probably at its greatest height since the Roman Empire. Rather, it's a failure to live out such an amazing, transforming consequence of being in Christ. Imagine how your unity in Christ so transforms you and your family. Imagine how unity in Christ changed the world. The threat of violence is impossible in Christ. And without this threat, the whole system of slavery collapses. Now, this is the only option that is consistent with Paul's teaching in chapters 1, 2, and 3. If every believer had been dead previously because of sin, and if the cross has turned down torn down, I beg your pardon, not only the wall of sin between every believer in God, but also between every believing Jew, Gentile, race, color, and language 
then the way between slave and free must inevitably also crumble to dust. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.